We see Jesus, increment 162. And I want to say at the outset that every message that I proclaim from this pulpit is dedicated <clears throat> to our Lord Jesus Christ. But today's will also be, while I cherish the memory of a dear friend who recently passed into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, I speak of Jim Andrews, a.k.a. Doc, who sat with Lynn so many times right over here to my left in New Kensington, and who was beloved by Tatalistai as he loved us. And... I can picture him in his seat here. He has no doubt received a grand entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we celebrate the fact that he sees Jesus as we do, only he also sees him as we don't yet. In the fullness of his essence as divinity and humanity. And he sees him from a position in glory while we see him in a glass darkly, still <clears throat> in this evil age. Doc and Lynn were a true demonstration of the apostolate. Together they brought the good news with them <clears throat> wherever they went. And when they came here, they always strengthened our assembly always encouraged and strengthened me. And I'm heartened to know that we'll see you soon, Jim. And of course, our love and mercy from the throne of grace through our prayers has been extended to Lynn. Lynn is my fellow theological traveler, only she's way ahead of me. She's the only person I know who's read the entire church dogmatics by Karl Barth. So carry on, Lynn. I know you will. You, Some of you may have remembered the times we prayed for Jim after he had a stroke years ago. And your prayers <clears throat> served to extend his life on this earth and his time with his beloved Lynn. And in that time period, my sisters in Florida got to know him and love him and many others. And this time, however, the Lord's voice was louder than your voice in prayer as he called him home. And so, as we're going to find out, Hebrews 11 has a sequel, and there's some faith heroes that have yet to appear in it. Jim's one of them. So, Father, we thank you today <clears throat> that when one of us crosses over into the glorious presence of our Redeemer, it encourages us beyond measure as we consider the end and outcome of one who kept the faith, who finished the course, who fought that fight. 
And it gives us great <clears throat> incentive to carry on and to hold on to this hope until the end, until it becomes, even in this life, an immovable assurance and until it's rewarded when we see our Savior, Christ Jesus. Bless the going forth of your word today. May it be a manifestation of the life and the livingness and the joy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's message, appropriately enough, is generally centered around the theme of the joyous hope. Our passage is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 15. For example, <clears throat> when Abraham made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after patiently waiting, he obtained the promise. This means he obtained Isaac. <laughs> this means he obtained a son, Isaac, the inchoate but not the complete fulfillment of the promise. Though the guaranteed fulfillment was seminally in Isaac. <clears throat> David Peterson <clears throat> rightly calls it a hortatory preamble. As there is a preamble to our Constitution, there is a preamble to the central section of Hebrews. That preamble is what we're about to complete. Ernst Kosman wrote that it's a preparation for a logos teleos, a mature word, a complete word. <clears throat> These two men were speaking of the section of the homily that includes Hebrews 5.11 through 6.20. Whatever you want to call it, this section is like a long runway to a takeoff into the central exposition of Hebrews, which constitutes a unique royal priestly Christology. Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, 18 is, the, is that central section. After that central section, there's an extensive exhortation from 10, 19 to 39. And that's followed by a definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and then the catalog of faith exemplars from times past in Hebrews 11. I believe that Hebrews 11 has a sequel in our time, in New Testament times, but also even in our own time. It's possible to see Hebrews 6.13 as the beginning of a final paragraph in this section of the homily. What we have in the last paragraph, which is 613 to 20, is not so much the subject of promises or the promise per se, 
But the certainty of the promise given to Abraham, a certainty that is emphasized by its fortification by a divine oath. The promise that Abraham received was that of a seed in whom all the nations would be blessed. Galatians 3.14 equates this blessing with the Holy Spirit himself, who is God's gift of God's own love. This is the same spirit who is to be poured out on all flesh, according to God's word in the prophet Joel, Joel 2.28. This means that Abraham was assured of innumerable descendants who are also considered to be in the singular seed, the singular offspring, and that all of humanity will eventually be in that singular seed by means of the Spirit coming upon all flesh. Regenerating. We have that word palingenesia. Regeneration in Titus 3.5. In a particular sense, we also have it in a universal regenerative sense in Matthew 19.28. The Spirit who comes upon all flesh regenerates and renews. Anakinosis is the word. You're going to see all these in the printed version of this message. Titus 3.5, Romans 12.1 and 2, Revelation 21.5. And by baptizing all of humanity into union with Christ, the spirit who comes upon all flesh baptizes all flesh into union with Christ. This union is a solidarity in which there are no antimonies or you could say mutual antagonisms like Jew versus Gentile, male versus female, slave versus free, barbarian or we might say deplorable versus sophisticated. Liberal versus conservative, black and brown versus white, and vice versa. These are gone, these antinomies, these antagonisms. But the oath-fortified promise is only part of the emphasis of this upcoming paragraph. In addition to the oath-fortified promise is what I call an oath-fortified oracle, that was already quoted in Hebrews 5, 6, and again in part, and with a little amendment in 5, 10. That oracle is found in Psalm 110, 4, which the Septuagint is 109, 4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to be looking at that phrase down the road, not in this increment or even in the next, but soon. After the order of Melchizedek, what's it mean? What, what does that denote? Is there a separate order of priests called the Melchizedekan order? We'll be seeing that. 
You are a priest forever. We'll also be looking at that word forever. Aistoneona or Aistoneona. And we'll be looking at various terms that are usually translated as forever. What do they really mean? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which the PT interprets as the Son, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, being designated an archpriest, not just a priest, but an archierus, an archpriest in the order of Melchizedek in 510 of Hebrews. Hebrews is all about the Son, whom God appointed heir of all things. Now many, and I've read and am reading several commentaries on Hebrews, there's never enough, many have proposed what they have considered to be the main theme of Hebrews. There's this quest to find the main theme or the main motif of Hebrews. But Hebrews is all about God's son. It's all about Jesus. In the same way that the gospel of God is said to be all about God's son. Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 1, 1 to 4. The remarkable correspondence between the exordium of Romans Romans 1, 1 to 4, and the exordium of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, is that they both say that what's to follow is essentially and indispensably about God's Son. Elsewhere, God's Son is called the Beloved in Ephesians 1, 6. Or he's called the son of God's love in Colossians 1.12. We'll be seeing that the designation of Jesus as God the Father's beloved is of momentous importance in the telos, in the end. 1 Corinthians 15.24, when God is all, when God is in all, and when all is in God in 1 Corinthians 15.28. God restores all things in Jesus as an action of his unrestricted, unrelenting, and unstoppable love. Now Peter and the two sons of Zebedee on the Mount of Transfiguration heard a voice from a cloud full of light that had enveloped them. The voice said, This is my beloved son, in whom I delight. Listen to him. Be attentive to him. And when this stunning phenomenon was over, the disciples did not see Moses and Elijah as they had been seeing them. It says they looked up and they saw no one except him, Jesus alone. In Matthew 17, 8, God's son is Jesus. The father points to him. The spirit points to him. The Bible points to him.
It's all about Jesus. Anyone upon whom the Spirit has come with power points to him, becomes a witness to Jesus in Judea, Samaria, and the farthest reaches of the earth, from Pennsylvania to California, from Tennessee to Texas. from Mississippi to Maine and all over the world to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, Isaiah 45.22. We may say that Hebrews is regarding completion, as we've suggested before, and it does regard completion. And completion or perfection is indeed a significant motif in Hebrews as it is in 56 of the 150 Psalms. But it regards the completion of the Son in his saving vocation as a great archpriest. And it regards the completion of creation and of humanity in the Son because of the Son's saving vocation as an archpriest like Melchizedek. Now that which sets our commentary on Hebrews apart from others, it's not brag, it's just fact. We're separate from other commentaries, and we should be. Otherwise, you can, I can give you a book to read and say, read that one. That which sets our commentary on Hebrews apart from others is that in ours we are emphasizing the hope of a cosmic redemption and a universal salvation made possible by the solidarity of Jesus, God's Son, with all of humanity in the wider context of all of creation and all of time and history. The last verses of Hebrews 6 serve to link the oath-fortified promise given to Abraham, the promise of an unimaginable progeny. The addition of that oath fortified to that oath fortified promise, the addition of an oath fortified oracle pronounced by God the Father to Jesus, his son, who is the sir, S-I-R, the single inclusive representative of that innumerable company. And here's the thesis for you. God desires that the full scope of hope is to be grasped by Christians in this present time of history. I'll repeat it. God desires that the full scope of hope is to be grasped by Christians in this present time of history. It is hope that's grounded in the universally saving significance of Jesus God's son, and rooted in his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice, which took away sin. To grasp the full scope of hope is to, quote, have the power to comprehend, together with all the saints, the breadth and width, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. In connection with this universal and diachronic horizon of hope and love are certain A words, I call them, A words. Another thing we could call them is alpha, logoi, if you want to go Greek with it, alpha, logoi, from the Greek word, letter alpha. We're going to consider in our next increment several words that begin with the Greek word alpha, or the Greek letter alpha, and that depict and bring to our imagery and the chamber of our imagery and our imagination what future world is to be. They are different terms for future world and for the age to come and for what God does, does in, those, in that age and what really he's already begun with the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, his son. So in connection with this universal and diachronic horizon of hope and love are certain A-words. My brother in grace, Phil Henry, says, that's the A-team. And he said, use that. And I said, no, I can't use that. That's your term. And I like it, though, the A-team. A-words are alpha logoi in the Greek New Testament. Words that begin with the Greek letter alpha. So in our next increment something to look forward to. We'll look at these and some other words too. Inasmuch as they help us envisage the future to which our hope is directed. Now the oath concept begins in Hebrews 6.13 to 14 with the powerfully emphatic oath fortified promise of God to Abraham. God swore an oath by himself that blessing he would bless Abraham and that increasing or multiplying, he would increase or multiply him. First, the Greek phrase e main is used here. E main. And that is a construct that together means surely or indeed. Second, he says blessing with the present active participle of eulogeo. And you'll see this in print too, and you'll see the different inflections of these words. The reason sometimes you see the word like karpos for fruit spelled one way and then spelled karpon or karpon another way is simply because it's the same noun with a different inflection or a different affix, not prefix, but affix on the end of the word because it is a different inflection or a different mood or voice or number or gender or tense if it's a verb or case like genitive or accusative. We're going to look at this. This is important. This Sometimes we have to get a little bit down and dirty with the Greek language and Greek words to get the true meaning. Minute exegesis yields major understanding. So emain is followed secondly by the word blessing, eulogeo, 
in its inflection, eulogon, and adds, I will bless you. Blessing, I will bless you. Using the future active indicative form of the verb eulogeo the second time. So it's, by interpretation, it would be this. Surely, blessing, I will bless you. The stacking up of these words adds emphasis and assurance and certainty to their futurity. Third, the second half of the iteration of the oath-fortified promise, which comes from Genesis 22:17, is similarly, similarly constructed. He says, multiplying, with the present active participial ver form of the verb plethuno, then he adds the future active indicative form of the same verb, plethuno, a different inflection. Now, believe it or not, there, this is actually a figure of speech. That's why I kept the translation literally here. Plethunon and plethuno are two different inflections of the same verb. This repetition of the same part of speech in different inflections is a figure of speech called polyptoton, P-O-L-Y-P-T-O-T-O-N, polyptoton. Now, you say, that doesn't mean anything to you. It means a lot to me, though, and it might even mean a lot to some people in this and in coming generations. Who knows? Polyptoton is important to me because figures of speech figure prominently in the interpretation of the scriptures, and that's what I'm after, the exact and the accurate and the precise meaning of scripture. Polyptoton, then, is a figure of speech which you can find in Bullinger's appendix to the Companion Bible. The Companion Bible by E.W. Bullinger is worth buying just for the appendix six in the back, which has a list of over a hundred figures of speech used in the Bible. And so polyptoton simply means many inflections. In this case, Hebrews 6.14 specifically we're dealing with, it's the repetition of the verbs meaning to bless and to multiply in both the present participle and then the future active inflections. And the inflections, again, are simply alterations of the forms and spellings of words to indicate different tense, voice, mood, gender, number, etc. Polyptoton is also used, and you probably can remember how it's used in Genesis 2.17 where God tells Adam that if he eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you will die. See that repetition? That's polyptoton. It's a figure of speech. Dying you will die. There it's used as a stern and sure warning connected to a divine prohibition. In Genesis 22.17, not 2.17, but 2217 this time, polyptoton is deployed as a promise fortified by a divine oath. Polyptoton can also pertain to the repetition of nouns or pronouns in various inflections, as in Romans 1136. Ex autu, kai di autu, kai ice auton, tapanta. And you'll see this in print again, again. Auton three times. Ex autu, kai di autu, kai ice auton. 
That is a polypteton, the use of many inflections, and it's translated from him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11.36, that's an emphatic way by polypteton to show the universal restoration. In Romans 11.36, the polypteton is used by Paul to put a strong climactic emphasis on the universal restoration. Arguably, the polypteton of Genesis 22.17 serves the same purpose because it refers to the incalculable multiplication of Abraham's seed in innumerable company of redeemed. Polyptoton was used by Joseph, Jacob's son. Joseph, the story of Joseph is one long analogy and type of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. Polyptoton was used by Joseph, Jacob's son, who said these last words to his siblings, his brethren. He said, I'm dying. And visiting episcope, God will surely visit you. Episkepsetai. You say it's two different words. No, visit is used twice, but with two different inflections. Visiting in the present, visiting in the future. Visiting, God will surely visit you. Visit has a connotation of salvation. Who is the son of man that you visit him? It's a visitation of salvation. First Peter 2.12, for example, the day of visitation. And the day star from on high visited us is a prophecy in Luke 1. I'm dying, he said, and visiting God will surely visit you and will bring you out of this land to the land about which God swore, God swore to our fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 50 and verse 24. So at that time, J Joseph made the Israelites take an oath, speaking of oaths, that when God comes to them to deliver them from Egypt, the land of slavery, in the Exodus, that they will carry his bones out of Egypt. The last verse in Genesis has to do with Joseph dying and being in a coffin in Egypt. If that's not a type of Jesus' burial in this evil age, anticipating resurrection, I don't know what is. This episode made it, in fact. So you picture, made it into Hebrews, but picture Joseph's casket or coffin being carried along with the exodus out of Egypt. He made them vow to do so, and they did. This episode of Genesis 50, 24, and 25 made it into the Hebrews catalog of faith exemplars because it says, by faith, which is the assurance of the hoped-for exodus in this case, exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt, Joseph, while dying, mentioned the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Hebrews 11.22. Imagine what you put in your will becomes an act of faith that becomes famous. Because you did it by faith. Joseph, by faith, made his brothers swear that they would carry 
his coffin with his bones in it up out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land in the Exodus. It's a splendid thing to see how the scriptures are all woven together as a tapestry of Christ. Joseph is a wonderful representation of Christ who died in this world and was buried and was raised in his own exodus, according to Luke 9.31. And in his exodus, he takes all of Israel and indeed all of humanity and all of creation into his liberation. In any event, this promise given to Abraham in Genesis 22:17 could not be more emphatically pronounced and its fulfillment more assured. The added phrase, emain, the double polyptaton, the double polyptaton, and the oath together combine to convey maximum assurance to the readers of Hebrews with respect to an innumerable company of the blessed. We understand, therefore, by combining other scriptures with this, that the innumerable seed of Abraham is to be all of humanity over the course of all time, who will, in the end, the telos, all be children of Abraham as those who have the faith of Abraham. That doesn't mean only those who are to be born through his hereditary line. All of humanity are destined to be the seed of Abraham because Christ is the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians 3.16. And in Christ, all will be made alive. That's not all in Abraham. That's all in Adam, all of humanity. Now, Hebrews 6.15 says, and we're still doing a kind of creative exegesis here, and so, having been patient, he obtained the promise. The idea is that the promise was obtained by Abraham only after he patiently waited for it. Most of life is waiting. But when we, through the Spirit, wait for the realization of the promises by faith, this waiting is not an empty enterprise or a vain undertaking a vain endeavor. Our waiting is filled with joyous anticipation. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, yes, makrothumia, but the fruit of the Spirit is also joy, karas, and peace, erene. Joy and peace can be the experience of those who are patiently waiting to obtain the promise. For example, the promise of eternal life in Titus 1.2 and 3.7, meaning in eternal life enjoyed in bodies of glory. We already have eternal life, but we wait for eternal life experienced in eternized bodies of glory in Philippians 3.21, in future world, in Hebrews 2.5 and 12.22-24. Now in Colossians 1.11, the apostle speaks of having all perseverance, hupomone, and patience, makrothumia. We already made a distinction between those two in a previous message. But then he adds, with joy, meta, M-E-T-A, kara, C-H, make that C-H-A-R-A-S, 
Metakaras, with with joy. Paul described the job of preachers. You know what our job is? To be helpers of the joy of our hearers. Not the dominators of their faith or of their lives. In 2 Corinthians 1.24, it's not a pastor's job, no matter what politician tells him to do it, to tell people to be vaccinated or not to be vaccinated. It's not a pastor's job. Why do you waste your time, clergy? You're to be helpers of people's joy, not dominators of their life and decisions and faith. This isn't the shepherding movement of the 1970s. So we're not called, and I speak now as all of us as Christians, we're not called to a grueling endurance apart from joy. Jesus even endured the cross with the joy that was set before him in his heart and mind in Hebrews 12.2. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. As such, we're not called to a joyless endurance. The patient waiting of a bride and a bridegroom for the honeymoon experience, for example, and for lifelong union is not a patient waiting without joy. It is a joyous anticipation. There's joy in their expectation, and there is great joy in the consummation of their marriage and their lifelong union together. Their longing for lifelong union is not without joy, and it is hoped that they will indeed experience a lifelong union. In fact, the very expectation with joy makes the experience of the union of body, of soul, and spirit all the more joyous. Moreover, even though they wait patiently for that union, when they experience it, it is still filled with surprise and with experiences that exceeded their expectation. This is analogous to the expectation of the bride, of Jesus, the bridegroom. No matter how much we envisage our meeting him and the experience of our everlasting union with him, our future with him will be fraught with pleasant surprises. There are pleasures forever and ever at his right hand, says Psalm 1611. Pleasures that infinitely exceed the delights and pleasures of sin in this evil age. Blessed are those who wait patiently. Now it's true that many experiences in this life are not joyous, and you'd be dishonest to say they were. They're grievous. For example, when God disciplines or trains us as his children, it often seems to be painful and not joyous. When my father confronted me for smoking a lucky strike, which I put out in the trash can of our bathroom and was still smoldering when he came home from work, that was not a pleasant experience. In fact, it ruined the birthday celebration of my mom, at least from my standpoint, 
didn't enjoy the coffee ice cream, didn't enjoy the cake, didn't enjoy the singing, because I was in the grievous expectation of the discipline of my father. Now, it worked because I quit smoking after that for four years. Now, however, that grievous experience, which seems to be painful and not joyous, while we're going through it, however later it produces its peaceable fruit, says the scripture, which is the experience of God-approved livingness, Hebrews 12:11, and a share in his own joy, in Nehemiah 8:10, and holiness, in Hebrews 12:10 and 14. We realize that God our Father chastens us as his cherished sons and daughters, Hebrews 12:7, Ephesians 5:1, and that Jesus, our elder brother, rebukes and chastens those whom he loves in Revelation 3.19. The soul that's been chastened and converted is a truly peaceful and joyous soul. We wait patiently for the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we wait with joy. In fact, this expectation itself is called a joyous hope in Titus 2.13. Tain makarian elpida. Makarian is another word for joy. And it means, to the ancient Greeks, it meant the sharing of the happiness of the gods who drank their ambrosia on Mount Olympus. Of course, for us, it's sharing the happiness of Christ. We wait patiently as we see Yahweh in Jesus with the eyes of our heart. We see Jesus as Yahweh and we effectively endure with joy until the moment when every eye sees him. 1 John 3, 2, Revelation 1, 7. When every knee willingly genuflects to him. When every tongue with uncontainable praise acknowledges Yahweh to be Jesus to the glory of God the Father. The absolute certainty of this occurring is underscored by God's oath. For in Isaiah 45, 23, Yahweh says, by myself I have taken an oath. Righteousness will go forth from my mouth. My words will not turn away that to me every knee will bend and every tongue will acknowledge God. As we've seen, and I'll close with this, we have one job, and that is to hold on to the hope that's given shape, form, and content by the promises of God. And we're to do this until our death, until our departure to be with Christ, which is very much better. Jesus made this eminently clear to the angel of the Messianic community in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. He makes it eminently clear to this pastor of a small church in New Kensington in the 21st century. Be faithful until death, 
and I will give you a crown of life. To be faithful is to hold on to the hope that's given shape and coherence by God's promises. It is to continue in faith, which is the growing assurance of things hoped for. It is to wait patiently with joy. There's a nice correspondence between the phrases, the hope that is set before us in Hebrews 6.18 and the joy that was set before Jesus in Hebrews 12.2, a joy that's also set before us. Hope and joy are both set before us in future world. I've tried to set this hope before us in the form of an anatomy of hope linked to a meditation on God's promises. And now we move to the certainty of two immutable things, which we'll look at after we see a few A words in our next increment. Father, bring these words home to us. Give those who hear this insight. May they see the insinuations made in it that were not spoken of clearly or evidently. May they see the suggestions in it by the spirit of truth and grace. And may we all see our Lord Jesus Christ in a clearer light, crowned with glory, the glory of a king, and honor, the honor of a great archpriest. We ask this in his name. Amen.